Hello, uh, my name is Marco D'Ambrogi, I'm a senior editor of The Lancet Infectious Diseases and we are here today to speak with Professor Manfred Green from the University of Haifa uh, about a paper that we're publishing uh, which is about the confronting the threat of bioterrorism which are the realities, challenges and defensive strategies. And the paper is a part of a series that the Lancet uh, Infectious Diseases is doing with the Lancet Psychiatry. And I'm here today with uh, Niall Boyce, who is the editor-in-chief of the Lancet Psychiatry. Hello, Marco. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, hello to Manfred. Hi, hello to all of you. So, as, as I just mentioned, this uh, paper is part of a series. And in this paper, you focus on what is the actual risk of bioterrorism and uh, basically what should we do, what are the challenges and what needs to change for the world to be better prepared for the eventuality of a bioterroristic attack. So uh, can you just introduce uh, how realistic is the risk of bioterrorism? Well, clearly there's no real way of assessing the risk since uh, we can only speculate uh, as to A, whether in fact someone is contemplating or a group is contemplating an act and whether they actually have access to the material and the knowledge to actually implement it. But uh, we do know that terrorism, unfortunately, is, uh, is a fact of life and is occurring not infrequently. And we also know that access to uh, biological materials that could be used aggressively in a bioterrorist attack are, they can be obtained. They are not, it's not impossible to obtain them. It requires someone who has access to the material and knows how to use it and disperse it. But uh, we know that this is possible. We certainly have the experience of the anthrax letters in the United States. So the possibility exists. I would say it's a realistic one, probably very small but with very high impact, of course. It could create uh, both physical uh, damage uh, and tremendous uh, psychological or panic reactions, and of course, very large economic costs. Absolutely. And uh, as you mentioned in the paper, uh, bioterroristic attack has some similarities and some differences from a natural outbreak of uh, an infectious disease. And uh, uh, we can use maybe the uh, West African Ebola virus outbreak as an example, just of an outbreak that can show some similarities of a risk of uh, introduction of a pathogen uh, high, highly, with a high lethality in the population. The differences are, there are differences and there are also a lot of similarities. I think the first rule is to expect the unexpected. So we basically cannot start with some kind of pre-existing viewpoint that will uh, put us into a position where we are likely to miss an event or at least detect it late. We will certainly detect it at some stage, but it, we want to detect it as early as possible and, of course, if possible, prevent it. So I think that the main points that are made is that it's usually, it would usually be an, an organism or a disease that's unusual, that's not usually seen, or not usually seen in that particular geographic location, and that it will occur in, in, a, in, a, in a number of people or several people, uh, more or less in close in time. 
depending on the disease, maybe I'll just add one point. If it's obviously a very rare one, like something that we assume has been eradicated, uh, like smallpox, then even one case, once it is detected, will be clear that this is a possibility, a real possibility that this is a deliberate act. But if it's a disease that does occur occasionally, such as plague, then we would probably only detect it after we saw several cases that are close in time and usually geographic locations. And this is a, a very interesting point because, of course, what you've talked about there is the, the physical damage, the, the death, the morbidity, the mortality, which could follow a biological attack. But, of course, the, the nature of a, a terrorist attack is that, unlike a, a natural outbreak, it's also designed by someone somewhere to provoke a particular psychological response. And you mentioned uh, this uh, just now. You talked about the, the fear and, and the panic. I wonder if you could expand on that. And, uh, you know, is, the, is, is it a case that infectious disease specialists need to be more mental health literate or mental health specialists need to be more ID literate? Um, I certainly agree with you that we need uh, to incorporate the, what we would call the mental health aspect. The aim we would imagine of bioterrorism is primarily to create panic. Uh, it can, of course, cause a lot of physical damage, illness and disease, but initially, at least, the idea would really be to create panic. And I think it's very much related to the fact that A, infectious diseases, uh, particularly when they occur uh, in situations where they are unexpected, uh, create uncertainty and fear. And if they are in a situation, if we are in a situation where the public believe that this was a deliberate attack, this, I think, introduces an even greater uh, cause for concern in terms of the uncertainty, because we will then feel that it could happen anywhere at any place. And as we know about infectious diseases, it's something that you cannot see and you cannot touch and you cannot smell. So it could be anywhere. You are exposed to it virtually wherever you are. So I think that these factors create a this tremendous sense of uncertainty and fear of the unknown. And of course, if it's a dangerous disease, such as smallpox or it could be Ebola or it could be plague, uh, this would increase it uh, dramatically. And uh, in your article, you also uh, try to... Uh sort of list uh, the uh, measures that could be put in place and that should be put in place to be pre better prepared for uh, an eventual bioterroristic attack. And uh, uh, basically you identify two, uh, two main areas, uh, which is one is more a political area, if we want, which is about uh, uh, providing funding for, to be prepared for a bioterroristic attack. And another one is a more uh, an area on the ground, which is for healthcare workers to be both aware of the risk of uh, unusual infectious diseases uh, emerging in the population after a bioterroristic attack, but also uh, the importance of protecting the healthcare workers from this uh, eventual emergence of pathogens. And uh, again, the Ebola, the Western African Ebola outbreak comes to mind when we talk about uh, healthcare workers and the risk uh, they uh, faced. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, which areas should be potentiated in, uh, in order to be better prepared for a bioterroristic attack? I think first and foremost, uh, and I mentioned that 
uh, if the society, general country society, are well prepared, then the people or the groups who might want to perpetrate this act would be less inclined to do it, <clears throat> since their impact would be minimal. So the pre being prepared in itself is a preventive measure. So I would say that making the, making it clear that there is a we have good facilities and we have good uh, preparation in place, and that would in itself would be a deterrent. So that would be the first thing. The second, of course, and you raise it, is to raise the awareness of the healthcare, the healthcare community so that they would be aware of the possibility that it could occur and then be at least suspicious of unusual presentations of uh, infectious diseases. I, and in fact, on the occasion when we've had either deliberate such as the anthrax or, or even the non-deliberate, then it's usually the very aware healthcare worker, often the physician in the front line, who is the first person or the first sign that we actually have something that's unusual. Going onto the side of funding, I know that that is probably one of the major issues that we have to deal with. Dealing with bioterrorism, as with any unconventional type of uh, um, aggressive action, requires money, requires a lot of funding. And uh, bioterrorism, biological warfare generally is heavily funded. So I think we have two responsibilities. We need to make sure that we're doing it in the most efficient way. And secondly, we have to check very carefully and, and look for ways in which it can be used for what we would call routine purposes. And in fact, fill in the gaps that we have for dealing with naturally occurring outbreaks. And that would obviously be in the development of diagnostic methods, of treatment, and of course of vaccines or preventive uh, therapies. So, I'd make one more thing. I think that we have to also take into account um, an obvious thing, and that is that in our society generally, uh, we tend to be wasteful of resources. We have a lot of resources that are devoted to one activity that could quite easily be applied to others. I've got an example may even be working space and living space, and for examples like that, to use them more efficiently. So I think if we make sure now that the research that's being done and the drugs that are being developed and the vaccine and the treatment and whatever you know, what is put in place in terms of healthcare facilities, these should be also geared towards dealing with routine events and actually integrated into the health services. I'd like to come in there with a question which is very relevant to uh, myself and Marco as publishers. You've mentioned there the idea of uh, gaining knowledge uh, of uh, infectious diseases and their treatment. And of course, what Marco's aim is, I suppose, with Lancet Infectious Diseases is to, to publish and disseminate that knowledge. Mm -hmm. But what about knowledge which might be dangerous in the hands of a potential bioterrorist? Doesn't that create a kind of ethical dilemma for the researcher and for the publisher in uh, the, the desire to be open and transparent and disseminate knowledge, but at the same time a concern as to where that knowledge might end up and how that knowledge might end up being used. I wonder if you have any views on this very, very difficult problem. You've raised, of course, an, an extremely important issue and one that's being debated widely. 
the so-called dual use. And dual use is often a problematic term because dual use can mean for good, you know, to use it for two good purposes, but often dual use means it could be used for good and bad. And I think that, uh, you know, this is certainly recently the report on on horsepox, which has more as the, the virus for horsepox has been synthesized or has been identified, and that may be the basis for synthesizing a smallpox virus. In other words, actually somebody creating a smallpox virus without actually having a virus uh, to use uh, is obviously a, a dangerous situation. And here comes the question as to whether, in fact, publishing the research that's been done on that area uh, would expose it to people who may actually want to use it uh, in an aggressive manner. I, there's obviously no good solution. I think that what we need to do, I'm not sure that there's any way that that information can be concealed. Because once people are researching something, even if they don't publish it widely, it's going to be very difficult, I think, to keep it uh, totally secret. So it, it's a problem in terms of limiting it. Uh, you could argue that we should limit the kind of research that's being permitted, but that's also uh, not not easy to implement, and, and it has its own ethical issues. So I think we need to put in as many good controls as possible. In other words, anyone who is working in this area, um, we would hope is a, is a trusted person, and uh, one of the recommendations is that senior people in this field should be conscious of the fact that the people working with them should be people that can be trusted. Uh, that's a very general and, and shall we say easy to say and not so easy to do, but uh, uh, but it's one area. Uh, the other is that we have to recognize the possibility that this, this could happen. Uh, in other words, somebody could actually abuse their position. And again, the anthrax uh, letters in the United States, it is believed, at least, at least as far as the FBI investigation, that it was someone who had access to the material. So it was not even necessary to go to the literature. It was actually, at least we believe, it is possibly a scientist who himself uh, had access both to the knowledge and to the material. So I think it's the awareness that it could happen, putting in these controls. And again, we go back again to the preparedness and to make sure that we are doing everything possible to make sure that we are able to control an event. And that obviously requires resources, but it also requires education. So education, the professionals, the healthcare professionals and scientists, and it also requires a certain amount of education of the public, and that would come, bring us, I guess, to the kind of mental health aspect with communication as to uh, how do we develop a situation where the public has trust in the authorities. And that's obviously not simple, <laughs> but we have to work very hard on it. There is an area uh, which uh, where both uh, the infectious diseases and psychiatry probably overlap, which is how you communicate with the general public. So what is the public right. health message that you give in a, to communicate the risk of bioterrorism? Because, of course, you need to strike a balance between making people alert that this is possible and in a way that will maintain the the pressure on government to keep funding any measure that uh, preventive measure but at the same time you don't want to cause panic so uh, what are your thoughts about this sort of difficult area well, 
how we communicate the risk of bioterrorism to the general public who might not have a deep uh, scientific knowledge of the pathogens, basically. I think the people who deal with it need professional advice in risk communication. And of course, this is a huge area and many good professionals are in that area. But I, again, I think that, in my opinion, the, the word trust is very, very central to this issue. Um, personally, when I was a spokesman or one of the spokesmen for the Ministry of Health here on, on influenza and on infectious disease outbreaks, um, what what I tried to do, and obviously this was a recommendation, was to be very honest, to be very honest about what I know and what I don't know. And uh, both about the disease and what is happening and both and also the efficacy of the vaccine and the treatment. And uh, at least my understanding was that I had, not just me, but I had fairly good ratings with the public in terms of trust. Uh, because I felt that I was actually exposing what I know and what I don't know, not trying to be overconfident, which was, I think, one of the problems the public would have. So I think that uh, we really have to develop a number of senior people who are, and this was done in many countries, who are the trusted spokesmen for the authority. Uh, and I guess it would be tailored to every uh, every country, but I, I would believe that they have to be people who are well-trained professionally. In other words, they they know the subject well and they are recognized specialists, but that they are also able to project and also know how to explain in a manner where people both understand as best possible and also are trusting. I think maybe I'll just mention one thing. One of the biggest dangers we have in, in a crisis situation with infectious diseases particularly, but it may be with others, is that there are many spokesmen. Many, many people want to talk. Many people want to be interviewed. People, I guess, like to appear on television or whatever. And unfortunately, the, the media sometimes approach people who are not the best people uh, for that position, uh, particularly in, in a field like medicine where uh, anyone who is a uh, medically trained medical doctor is assumed to know virtually everything in medicine. So they may ask you know, someone trained in uh, orthopedics, gynecology, or whatever, to talk on vaccines. And that may not, usually would not be the best person. It should be someone who is a specialist in infectious diseases and vaccines. Uh, so you, would have, you can't prevent the media from turning to whoever they want. Uh, we could try and uh, encourage our colleagues not to be so ready to be interviewed on subjects that they're not very familiar with. But I think we also have to establish in the public's mind that there are spokesmen. And that has to be done not just when there's an emergency. We have to try and establish a situation where constantly there is some exposure of some one or more people who the public recognizes as being specialists in that field. And that's, again, I guess, not a simple process. It, it's not a simple process. And we've been talking, of course, about educating the public. But as uh, professionals, health professionals, we also need to learn. One of the uh, lessons of psychiatry over the past uh, few decades is that individuals and communities don't always see the world as health professionals do. That's often a very painful lesson to learn. So I wonder if 
maybe in addition to talking about the preparedness in terms of infrastructure, in terms of vaccines, in terms of other types of research and healthcare interventions, there's a degree of maybe what you might term anthropological preparedness needed when we're, we're facing the threat of bioterrorism. Yeah, again, I would agree with you entirely. I think we need to be very culturally sensitive. We have to recognize that there are different ways of interpreting information and also uh, re reacting to whoever's providing that information. You know it with regard to the anti-vaccination movement. So I, I guess you have to incorporate into the team that is going to deal with the uh, media and deal with risk communication. You need a multidisciplinary team. And that team has to be maintained constantly. It cannot be set up during a crisis. This is a team that should be trained within each, and I would hope that in each country, uh, let's say in the Ministry of Health, uh, they would have a team like that that is a, a constantly updated. And, and, and there should be attempts to expose that team to the public as frequently as possible. I understand the problem of exposing a team to the public when there's no real crisis because the public won't be really interested. But we may be able to find ways of demonstrating to the public that these are people who are knowledgeable and who are honest. And those are, these are the two. And the, the one thing that I need to mention, and this is sometimes not, I think it's understood, and that is that the people who are providing the information, the risk communication should have the best information available. And we are often lacking in the way in which we collect the information and present it. Let me give you a quick example, uh, and you can give a number. Even with the Ebola, you can do it. But if I take the, uh, even the influenza, the, nine, the 2009 pandemic, um, the, the information that was provided by the authorities in various countries was slow to appear, and often not necessarily because it wasn't available, but because it was not coordinated. That was my impression, at least. Uh, we have to internationally make sure that we are collecting information and presenting it constantly to the people who are dealing with it so that they have at hand the best information possible. Uh, this is you know, maybe I'll give one final example, and then you, sorry I don't want to take up too much of your time. But uh, when we had influenza, for example, every year you have the seasonal influenza, and we, there's always the interviews on, on TV and radio, what's happening with influenza and so on. And uh, some years ago we set up a very, very good, a good um, surveillance system for influenza, a laboratory surveillance system. Uh, also non-laboratory, but mainly so, uh, together with that, similar to it's done in many countries. And so that when, when we were in from the ministry, we were interviewed on it. We didn't just speak as if this is what we think is happening. We could actually quote data that we had. We could actually say we have information that the virus is circulating or isn't circulating or to what extent it's circulating. So I think this is also an issue that we need to deal with. Good information and something that can be presented to the public. Thank you very much, Manfred. That was very interesting. And, uh, well, I would just suggest to people listening to read your paper and get uh, more information in, in detail. Thank you very much, and thank you to Niall. Thank you.